Do you guys know what a cistern is? It's not the female version of brethren. You're not likely to run into a a cistern in suburban America. But in Old Testament times, they were very common. A cistern was a, a pit hollowed out in the ground to hold rainwater. It was typically lined with cement so that the water wouldn't seep back into the ground. If you lived a good distance from the nearest well or river or other body of water, which was the case for many, many people in the region of Palestine in ancient times, it would be commonplace for you to dig out a cistern and to situate it in a place where the rainwater coming off of your roof would be likely to to channel itself toward that cistern so that you could have plenty of water. Uh, I saw a recent uh, newsletter from one of our missionaries who had a, an above-ground cistern. Nowadays, you got sheet metal and fiberglass. You can do that kind of thing. And a couple of boys got some water out of it from the spigot at the bottom and left it open, and the whole cistern drained. <laughs> anyway, that, uh, that's a, that was a common way for people to collect water. Now, I want you to picture a man who lives just a few steps from a fountain that's fed by an underground spring, a fountain that flows so abundantly with water 24-7, water so plentiful that it creates a stream that then provides water to most of his neighbors. What would you think of that man if he ignored that fountain just a few steps outside his front door and invested a bunch of time and money and effort to build a big cistern to hollow out a big cistern in his backyard. And then, what if one day while he was reaching down to patch some of the cement toward the top of his lovely cistern, he lost his balance and fell into it. And then a few days later, he died of thirst down there in his wonderful cistern while that fountain outside his front door continued to overflow with cool, clear water. What would you call someone like that? Ah, good word. (laughs) Stupid comes to mind. I can picture the inscription on his tombstone. Fred always loved irony. Now, lest we scoff too much at the foolishness of of that picture... I submit to you that we are all masters at digging dry, waterless cisterns and then falling into them. If it were not for God's amazing grace, you and I, every one of us, would be stuck in the dry pits of our own making. And we would have no way out. Our passage this morning is about God saving His people. It's about God rescuing us out of our waterless cisterns and bringing us to a place of great power, abundant provision, and perfect peace. He tells us a whole lot in this passage about the salvation that He has prepared for His people. He tells us about the basis of that salvation, what it is that makes it certain. He tells us what it is that He saves us from and what He saves us to. And then He tells us how His work of salvation makes us useful to Him even now. Now, I'm going to spend a bunch of time in the first two verses because they are absolutely loaded with good things. Things that amazingly flow directly from 
the topic, the theme of our worship this morning. And then we'll pick up steam and we'll move a little more, more quickly through the remaining verses. At the end of the previous passage, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, God declared to his people that their king is coming. He spoke of how the king would come to Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey, just and endowed with salvation. And then in verse 10, he spoke of that, that king's eventual dominion over the entire world, speaking peace to all the nations. Now, starting in verse 11, he focuses on the marvelous work of salvation that he has accomplished and will yet accomplish toward his covenant people. At the beginning of verse 11, he says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. I titled the first half of that first verse, Saved because of the blood of the covenant. Now, I could have said, saved because God keeps his promises. But that would have watered it down too much. Because whether we like it or not, this is about blood. This is about the very thing that our worship focused on this morning. In the Old Testament, the parties to an important covenant bound themselves by blood through the ceremonial sacrifice of an animal. According to Jeremiah 34, before the fall of Jerusalem, before the Babylonians took the Judahites off into captivity, King Zedekiah and the people of Judah made a covenant promise before God to release all of the Hebrew slaves in their possession so that they could go back to their homes, back to their families. The Judahites bound themselves to that covenant with God by killing a calf and cutting it in two, and placing two, the, the halves at some distance from each other, and then the people passed through between the parts of that calf, the halves of the slain animal. The shedding of the blood sacrifice of an animal signified the solemn nature of the covenant. But much more to the point, it provided a picture of what would be expected to happen to the one who violated the words of that covenant. It was as if the Israelites and Judahites in this manner were saying, see that calf? See what happened to him? May God do so to me and more also if I violate the words of this covenant. Now according to that account in Jeremiah 34, after releasing their Hebrew slaves, the Judahites violated their agreement with God. They went back and got those slaves because they didn't like doing without them. And so, God said this to them in Jeremiah 34, verses 19 to 20. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. Those who violated the covenant didn't end up any better than that calf. That's what you're supposed to expect when you violate a covenant of blood. But there's something different going on in this passage in Zechariah 9. See, if this passage was about 
God's people keeping their covenant obligations to God, this would be a declaration of judgment, not a declaration of salvation. Because throughout their history, Israel had violated the covenant relationship that they had with God. In this passage, God declares that He has freed His people from their imprisonment. And He declares that the reason, the basis upon which He has freed them is the blood of the covenant. Now I want to back up again a little bit just to give some good context to this blood of the covenant thing. In Exodus 24, after Moses relayed to the people of Israel the Ten Commandments and the other detailed commandments and ordinances of the law of God that he had received from God, Moses built an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai and he erected twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he offered burnt offerings on that altar and he sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Exodus 24, verse 6, starting at verse 6, says this, Moses took half of the blood, he put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, the people said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And it, then it says, so Moses took that other, that remnant of the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, behold the blood of the covenant. And that's exactly the same words, the blood of the covenant, same words that are used here. Behold the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses was saying, pay attention. This is not a minor thing that you have done in the eyes of God. Israel confidently obligated themselves to obey God's law through a covenant of blood. So how did they do with that covenant? Well, during the next 40 days, immediately after that, while Moses was up on the top of Mount Sinai waiting for God to inscribe the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, what were the people doing at the bottom of the mountain? They took the gold that God had given to them as the spoils of His victory over Egypt, a victory that He obtained without them wielding a single weapon. And they took that gold and they fashioned a calf and they called it Yahweh and they bowed down to it and they worshipped it. And that was just the beginning of Israel's idolatries. They had a party to end all parties. The whole rest of the Old Testament is filled with their spiritual adultery as they chased after every god whose name they heard among the pagan nations and violated every commandment that God had given them. God didn't violate the covenant of blood. The people did. So whose blood was supposed to be shed to make that right? In the final analysis, whose blood was shed? to make that right. The one who bore the consequence of Israel's sin is the servant king that this book is all about. And a little bit later, in chapter 12, it's going to talk about the day when they will recognize Him as the one whose blood was shed on their behalf. God did things this way 
He fulfilled His own covenant of blood with His people because of another covenant of blood. The first one. The one that was primary to all the others. Way back in Genesis 15, and forgive me if it seems like I'm spending too much time on this covenant of blood thing. This is absolutely critical to what's going on here. Back in Genesis 15, when God ratified or formally confirmed His covenant promises with Abraham, God told Abraham to bring him several animals and to cut them in half and to lay the pieces of the slain animals at some distance from from each other. But instead of having Abraham pass between the halves of those animals, God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And then the glory of God passed between the halves of the animals. Abraham was the passive party in that covenant ceremony. God was the one and only active party. God bound Himself to His promises to Abraham by a covenant of blood. His promise to give Abraham innumerable descendants and to give those descendants the land of His promise, the land in which ultimately He would come and dwell in their midst. And in Genesis 12, He promised to bless Abraham and through him to bless all the families of the earth. It was on the basis of that covenant that God is now declaring here in Zechariah 9 that He would set His people free, deliver them from their enemies, and make them prosper in the very land that He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How would those marvelous covenant promises get fulfilled? Through a new covenant of blood. Not the blood of a lamb or of a calf, but the blood of the promised servant, priest, king that this book is all about. Now, Zechariah's audience didn't have that whole picture yet, but we do. We do. How would God ultimately fulfill His promises to Abraham? How would He fulfill both sides of the Mosaic Covenant, His side and the people's side, that they failed? How would He fulfill His promise to King David? How would He fulfill the new covenant promises? All the same way. By the precious blood of the Lamb. There is no other blood that avails. That's the basis of God's salvation of His people. The blood of His covenant with us. The second half of verse 11 is about what God has saved us from. He says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now in the most immediate sense, I believe this is a reference to a salvation already, a deliverance already accomplished. When God moved King Cyrus to decree that the captive Judahites could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But this metaphor of God freeing His people from a waterless pit goes much, much further than just that near-term outworking. This image of the waterless cistern had already been used by God to indict His people. In Jeremiah chapter 2, turn there if you've got your Bibles. Jeremiah 2, verse 11. God said to Judah, Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares Yahweh. 
And then he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a powerful picture. Israel and Judah dug their own cisterns because they had forsaken the one who calls himself the overflowing fountain. Does that make any sense? No. But it's what we all have done. In the most blatant form, Israel's broken cisterns were the false gods to which they had turned aside. But as we saw last time when we looked at Micah chapter 5, it wasn't just the religious manifestations of idolatry that showed what Israel's and Judah's hearts were actually like. It was also their horses and their chariots and their bows and their fortified cities in which they had come to trust instead of trusting in God alone. Israel had had a thousand years of experience digging waterless pits and then falling into them because they would not trust in God alone. Now how do you get yourself out of a waterless pit? The answer is not by yourself. This passage is about God's gracious work of salvation by which He reaches down and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He pulls His wayward people out of their waterless pit, not because they deserve it, but because of the blood of His covenant with them alone. Now what is your waterless pit? Maybe you have a whole backyard full of them. Is it the great skill with which you do your job and provide for your family so that you have much confidence that that it'll continue to be that way until it's time for retirement? Is it the quality of your wise and godly child-rearing skills that makes you very confident that your kids will never be as miserable as that other guy's kids? For some preachers, it may be their confidence in their ability to fill a church week after week with people who are eager to hear every word they have to say. For some young people and for some old people, perhaps it's a watered-down, compromised Christianity. One that lets you set the terms for what you want to call godly living. It lets you pick and choose which parts of God's Word you find acceptable and ignore the rest. It lets you cling to unforgiveness toward a particular person or sexual self-indulgence or materialism or an inflated view of your own self-importance or your own coolness. But it's broken. It doesn't hold water. It's useless to you and it's useless to everybody else because it did not come from God. We make these dry cisterns for ourselves and then we fall into them and we can't get out. But God reaches down and pulls us out of our self-made prisons only because of His faithfulness to the covenant promises that He has made to us. Promises He obligated Himself to keep by the blood of a covenant that His Son fulfilled. Okay, so He saves us from waterless pits. What does He save us to? Verse 12, we are saved to return to the stronghold 
As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free out of the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have hope. Literally, O prisoners of hope. Think about that phrase for a little while. (laughs) This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. Now the word for restore is the same word that's used all over this book that means return. It's the same word that was used twice in Zechariah 1 verse 3, which I believe is the heart of this whole book, where God says to His people, return to me that I may return to you. And He's saying the same thing here, but in different words and with a vivid image. Because the stronghold to which He calls us to return is Him. Jeremiah 16 talks about it. And turn to that if you've got it. Jeremiah 16 verse 18. It talks about a double payment of a different kind. (laughs) And it talks about the stronghold. God says in Jeremiah 16, 18, And I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land and they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. See, what, what Israel and Judah deserved as a double payment was to suffer twice over for walking away from God and embracing false gods. But because God is a redeeming God, this passage says something amazing in verses 19 and 20. Jeremiah 16, 19, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of the distress, to Thee, get this, to thee the nations will come from the end of the earth and they will say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things of no profit. Can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. Even the pagan nations whose gods Israel embraced will one day come from the ends of the earth and they will confess the futility of their self-made idols and they will acknowledge Yahweh as their one and only stronghold. Is that beautiful? There are many other passages that refer to God as a stronghold, as the stronghold. Psalm 18. Several Psalms. Nahum 1 verse 7. See, God is saying to His people here, return to the stronghold and I, your stronghold, will return double to you of me. This is very personal. What a powerful contrast. God pulls us out of waterless pits that we've dug for ourselves because we failed to trust in the one who is the overflowing fountain. He pulls us out and he brings us back to that fountain. And then he calls us to come to him as our stronghold. If you look at the two the two images in that, you have a complete picture of well-being. See, you could have all the abundance in the world, but one powerful enemy or one serious illness or one misfortune could take it all away from you. But when you have both abundant provision and undefeatable protection, that's real well-being. That's well-being that is both great and secure. And that's the well-being that God gives to His people. Would you exchange that well-being to go back to your dry pit? Beloved, God doesn't save us out of our waterless pits so we can go dig another one. 
He doesn't save us out of our self-made affliction and then hand our well-being back to us and say, okay, have another go at it. He saves us to call us to Himself as our only stronghold, our only source of well-being. Are you willing to accept that nothing good will ever come from you? Because that's what God's call to us is. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We can't match that. We can't even come close to it. Are you willing for God to cut off the work of your hands so that He may be your only stronghold? It's painful when He does that, but it's wonderful when we get it. He's going to do it, by the way, whether we're willing or not. But it's a whole lot better to be willing. (laughs) It's a lot more fun, too. Verses 13 to 15 tell us that God doesn't only save us so that we will find our well-being in Him. He saves us so that we will be useful to Him for His glorious and eternal purposes. He says, I will bend Judah as my bow and I will fill the bow with Ephraim and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. At the end of the previous passage, God declared that He would cut off horses and chariots and bows from Ephraim, from Israel, and from Judah. In God's campaign of conquest that will submit every dominion on this earth to the rule of His perfect King, God has no use for the works of our hands. None whatsoever. He has use only for the work of His hands. And in this passage, He declares that the work of His hands is His people. And He will make them the weapon of His judgment. This is a powerful picture. I will bend Judah as my bow and I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will make you like a warrior's sword. Verse 14 makes it clear that the battle is entirely God's battle. It says, Then Yahweh will appear over them like a, like a banner of war. And His arrow will go forth like lightning. Not theirs. And the Lord God will blow the trumpet. His trumpet. And he will march in the storm winds of the south. The harshest winds in southern Palestine were the winds that blew in from the Negev, from the desert to the south of Jerusalem. Because as they, as the wind came in from the south, it had no obstructions, no mountains, no valleys, just flat desert. And so it gained momentum as it came along and it brought sand and dust and wind. And it was very destructive. God declares here that He will inhabit the storm winds of the south as He marches forth to judge and to conquer. And His people will be the instruments of that conquest. See, you and I, if you belong to Jesus Christ, will be in that victorious army when He returns. And as His people, we are this very day the instruments of His conquest. But it's a different phase of the conquest than that one that's coming. The part of the conquest that we're acting as God's instruments in the midst of right now is a continuation of Jesus Christ's work to seek and save that which is lost. We as individuals 
And we corporately as the body of Christ are God's instrument of that warfare. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5 through says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're much better than that. They are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what our warfare is like now. We are God's instruments of battle against the world forces of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6. And our greatest weapon, the offensive weapon by which we advance the kingdom of God right now is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You cannot stand against every, every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God if you do not have the knowledge of God. You cannot proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that advances His kingdom if you do not know that gospel from beginning to end. And that gospel is the story of this entire book. You cannot take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ if you don't know what obedience to Christ even looks like. If you're still making that up for yourself. We are the weapons of God's warfare now. And we will be when He returns. That will be a different kind of warfare. And He will make His people to enjoy the spoils of His victory, just like He did when He freed Israel from Egypt. The imagery in verse 15 is violent. There's no way around it. Not only will God defend His people in the day of His wrath, but by His hand, His people will devour His enemies. They will trample underfoot the sling stones of those images, enemies. It's a picture of, of the enemies hurling these stones and they fall short of their target and they fall to the ground and we, as we advance on that enemy, trample those stones underfoot. The blood of those enemies will be poured out like wine at a feast and like the blood of a sacrifice that fills the basin of the altar and drenches the corners of the altar. This image of blood poured out in the day of God's judgment like abundant wine is not an uncommon image in the Bible. In fact, the connection between wine and blood occurs throughout the Old Testament, especially in passages that have to do with judgment. And it is a very powerful image in the, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Turn to Revelation 19. It's a very familiar passage. We looked at it last week, or a couple of weeks ago. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. And look at how blood plays into this. And I saw, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Beloved, we do not have a harmless Savior. The world isn't going to get over that delusion until the day He comes back. But when He does, there's going to be a rude awakening. We do not have a harmless Savior. 
In righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And by the way, how did those armies get their robes turned white? Go back and look at Revelation 7. When John beholds myriad upon myriad from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and they are standing in white linen before the Lamb and he says, who are these people? And the angel tells him, these are those who have come out of the world, out of the, out of the testing and they have had their robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. We talked about in the, that in the worship this morning. What kind of blood turns things white? There's only one. All right. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then it says, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A little further down, it talks about in that passage how there's going to be a big feast. You know who gets to have the feast? The birds. And they're going to feast on the flesh of all of those who have fallen slain because of the sword that comes out of the mouth of the King of Kings. Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20 has this same image of the winepress. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and he gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth. Verse 19, and he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And get this, the wine was, the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. If you find such images distasteful, that's tough. You might find a fire to be beautiful, but that won't stop it from consuming you when it overtakes the place in which you are standing. And beloved, our God is a consuming fire. The popular image of Jesus of a kindly, innocuous, harmless teacher who tolerates everyone just as they are is going to crash and burn when He comes back. You will play one of two possible roles when He returns. Either you will be in the company of those whom He has rescued out of their waterless cisterns, out of their sin, whose robes have been made white and pure by His redeeming blood. Those who will stand with Him in His victorious army. Or, or, you will be among those trodden down as grapes in the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, whose blood will flow in the valley of Megiddo up to the bridles of the horses for 200 miles. Whether you like it or not, the one who came first with humility and salvation is coming again to fully and finally lay claim to His land and to His people. And when He does, He is going to clean house and there will be no second chance.
if you have not turned to Him as your only Savior, as the one and only stronghold, I pray that you will turn your face to Him today, now. That you will stop trusting in the self-made imitation of life that is in fact nothing but a prison for you for eternity. And that you will confess before God that nothing that comes from you is any good to Him. What makes you blessed, what makes you useful, what makes you purposeful and powerful and joyful and peaceful is what God gives to you, not what you give to Him. The last two verses of this great chapter turn from the image of God's campaign of warfare and judgment to the glorious aftermath of that campaign, to the promise of that which is in store for the victors, for us who are looking forward to a salvation that will be fully realized, that glorious kingdom to which we are destined. Verse 16 says, And Yahweh their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people. For they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in His land. He will save us as the flock of His people. His people. This is personal to God. He has determined from before the foundations of the earth to create a people for His own possession. Zealous for good deeds. And that's us. That's everyone who belongs to Him by faith in His Son. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. He's presented in this passage as the Good Shepherd. And that will, we will see that that will stand in stark contrast to the false shepherds that He talks about in chapter 10, which we'll look at next time. The New King James does a great job of rendering verse 16. It says, And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people. And then it says, For they shall be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over His land. That's as close to the original as I can get. Now verse 14, back in verse 14, God said He would appear as a banner over His troops in the, in the day of judgment. But now in the time of abiding peace that follows that day of judgment, God's going to make us, His people, like precious gems in a crown that is lifted up as a banner over His land. See, the crown jewel of His kingship, of His perfect dominion over His entire creation will be us. Is that neat? <laughs> it will be His people. God will point to us as the proof of His goodness and beauty for all of His creation to behold. Verse 17, the commentators kind of struggle with this when it says, in this translation, it says, for what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? And I take it that the literal wording is how great is His or its goodness. It's just third person singular. How great is his or its goodness, how much is his or its beauty? And I take this to be a reference to the crown that was talked about in the preceding clause. But you know what? It really doesn't matter whether the right translation is its goodness and beauty or his goodness and beauty because the only way that you and I ever get any goodness and beauty is when it comes from him. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to Taylor's 
Taylor Lett's message on Psalm 45. There's a place in there where he talks about the fact that what makes the bride of the king beautiful is the king when she bows down to him. That's what makes us beautiful. The last image presented in verse 17 is that of young men and women in the midst of great abundance of provision and much well-being. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine, the virgins. Grain and new wine are images from cover to cover in the Bible that, that point forward to the day when God's King will have dominion over His entire creation and He will make all things new. What God has in store for us is magnificent. Beloved, this is not all there is. This is not as good as it gets. (laughs) Praise God. Do not be discouraged by the travails of this life. Fix your hope on the One who is coming. I read a post just this week from a dear sister who's in the midst of a relentless and painful struggle in, in her life because someone that she loves dearly is bent on pursuing waterless cisterns. When I read her post, it convicted me and it encouraged me. And it reminded me that the only way that we can live as overcomers when we are surrounded by the curse of our sin and everybody else's sin is to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. To to know what's coming. God's not finished yet. Romans 8, verses 24 and 25 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? If, If you've already got it, you don't hope for it. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And that's where we are, brothers and sisters. We are eagerly waiting. You and I need to know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. We need to know that this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We need to know these things. Romans 8.18, 2 Corinthians 4.17 Now surely, there is great blessing right here and right now in our relationship with God and with God's people. There is great blessing in being useful to Him and being His ambassadors in a lost world, proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has saved us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Walk with Him. Learn from Him. Follow Him. Adore Him. Worship Him. And be useful to Him. He will sustain you and He will bless you in the fiercest and most furious storms of this life if you will cling to Him as your stronghold now. But know this. This is not as good as it gets. Not by a long shot. God has not left us to claw our own way out of our waterless cisterns. Praise be to God that He is not because we'd be stuck. He knows we can't get out on our own. He had to save us because we could not save ourselves. And what's so cool is He delights in saving. Go listen to what Bob taught last week. He delights in saving. 
He delights in fixing what's broken. Jesus came the first time in humility to do that. To seek and save that which was lost. To secure the undoing of the curse of our sin. The blood that was shed at the cross was the blood of a new covenant. And it is the blood of that covenant that saves to the uttermost. All the other covenants were pictures of that one. The one who died to save us and make us his own is coming back. He's coming back to claim us. He's coming back to claim his place. And he is coming back to be in that place with us forever. Our king is coming back. And when he does, he will make all things new. I'm going to close with Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Very, very well-known verse, passage. And I saw, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He shall wipe every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I and making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be as God and He will be my Son. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask it in Your precious name. Amen.